When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Professor Anne Rosalie David, commonly known as Rosalie David. Professor David is an emeritus professor at the University of Manchester. Her research specialties lie with mummies, bioarchaeology, and the history of medicine. Within these fields, Professor David has initiated and led many projects investigating ancient livelihoods and pathology. As you will see, this knowledge is abundant and personal, going to the very heart of ancient Egyptian life. My interview with Professor David was organised by Pen and Sword Publishing, who recently published her book A Year in the Life of Ancient Egypt. This book dives deep into the daily life and world of the ancient Egyptians. Professor David builds her story on real studies from mummies and combines them with texts and art to create a full picture of life in the ancient world. You can find a link to this book in the episode description. I highly recommend it. Now then... Introduction finished, on with the show. Allow me to introduce Professor Anne Rosalie David. So, Professor David, thank you very much for joining me on the History of Egypt podcast, and welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. Good morning. So, where are you based at the moment, and how are things uh, going for you? Well, I'm based uh, near Manchester in my home, and as you all know, we're all in lockdown, uh, but I'm using the time um, constructively in that we're writing and editing a new book. So oh, um, a lot of us have been in contact with that. So it's, it's uh, going quite quickly, really. Are you able to give us a hint on what the book will be about? Yes, absolutely. It's a multidisciplinary study uh, by Manchester and Belfast, on a mummy in the Ulster Museum in Belfast. And the book is due to come out next year. Uh, so it's, it's been very exciting, really. Is this the study of Takabuti that was um, publicized earlier this year? Yes, it is. Yes, it's the in-depth study, but for, you know, general readership. So uh, hopefully the story will go around the world. <laughs> exciting. And I will make sure to... Uh, publish that publicize that once it comes out because that was a very interesting study um, and I look forward to reading that so speaking of mummies many of my listeners will know you for your work on mummies particularly your research regarding the lifestyles and pathologies and physical characteristics of ancient Egyptians 
first up, what drew you to mummies particularly as the field of expertise you wanted to specialise in? Well, my background is as an Egyptologist. I learnt hieroglyphs, uh, the history, and I did my PhD thesis on uh, the ancient Egyptian temple. Uh, when I had my first appointment in Manchester back in 1972, um, some work had begun on the mummies in the collection, but it was very much in a, a sort of amateur way. And I thought if this is going to be done, we should do it properly. Uh, and the then professor of diagnostic radiology, a man called Ian Isherwood, was very keen to help with this. And so we set up the beginnings of the Manchester Mummy Project and all the Egyptian mummies in the Manchester Museum collection were over time taken to uh, Professor Isherwood's department and, and x-rayed. So that was the beginning of it, really. I think the mummies chose me rather than me choosing the mummies. And how many mummies are we talking about in the collection? Uh, 21 human and 34 animal mummies. Oh, important distinction. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's quite a large, large collection to begin with. That must've been a very hefty workload. Yes, it was. And the, uh, the mummies went into the Manchester Royal Infirmary at the weekend uh, when there were not the patient numbers um, because you couldn't uh, expect to go in, you know, in the week. Uh, so it took time, uh, weekends over a period of probably about two years altogether. Wow, and it's very intense. So from those mummy studies and, um, you know, many subsequent uh, research projects, your, your book, A Year in the Life of Ancient Egypt, has reconstructed some aspects of life for ordinary people living in the Nile Valley during the Pharaonic period. I'm curious about what inspired this work particularly, because it's very, it's very comprehensive and it's very sort of uh, big picture at the same time. So what, what inspired you to write this kind of work? Well, there were a number of things. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm interested in the ordinary people of ancient Egypt, uh, um, you know, more than the uh, probably the, the royals. Um, so I think it's very good to look at the comprehensive uh, social setup in Egypt. Uh, but also, um, the book, in a way, uh, is a method of trying to describe what was going on in different professions and trades and circumstances. So I created this virtual family um, of individuals who had roles within these different areas. So I could use them really as a, a peg on which to hang these uh, descriptions and, and discussions. Um, and the idea was then uh, that it would be um, heavily illustrated from the Manchester Museum uh, Egyptology collections, uh, which it is. Uh, and so this gets um, images of the collection uh, out to um, a much wider readership. So it was an experiment in a way, and I really enjoyed doing it. Hmm. And you based you based many of your the fiction the fictional quote unquote characters on actual mummies in the collection, as I understand it. Yes, I had to find names for these uh, people, and so hmm. I thought, what better to do than to actually um, uh, name them after mummies in the museum? Although, of course, they don't bear any direct relationship to them. Sure. <laughs> okay, and so you meant you mentioned it as a sort of experiment. How do you how do you feel it turned out looking back? 
Yes, I think it worked. Uh, it worked well. I think it's very important always uh, to think about these mummified remains as um, who and what they were when they were living people. Uh, and mm. this, in a way, is, is a way of um, bringing them to life, if you like, uh, but also um, getting across quite a lot of uh, facts about ancient Egypt. Mm. And moving, moving into slightly the more, I guess, detailed or academic kind of aspects, you've published uh, several noteworthy studies regarding the diseases which ancient Egyptians in particular experienced. And um, just from some of your published uh, articles, this includes uh, conditions like cancer and tuberculosis and arthritis. Now, one in particular that caught my eye was schistosomiasis, which is a parasitic infection that apparently affects millions of people in modern Egypt, but also shows up in ancient mummies. So I'm curious, and I think my listeners would be very interested to learn, is how do you identify a parasitic infection in a mummy or a skeleton? Yes, this was um, a major project that we, uh, we looked at the evidence for the disease uh, in human remains in Egypt in antiquity. And this was tied in with um, um, a modern study in Egypt by the governments of Egypt uh, and the United States, uh, because mm. they were trying to look at the disease and its impact in, um, in some of the communities in Egypt today. So our study was, if you like, the historical context, uh, because you can show that the disease goes right back um, over some 5,000 years. So um, what types of um, the condition were there? Um, how did it uh, impact on the population? Were there any cures and so on? So um, basically, um, the way of identifying uh, parasitic infestations, including schistosomiasis, uh, in, in mummies, first of all, um, well, of course, histology has been the basic method where you get a tissue sample. Um, mm. This is rehydrated mummy sample uh, and mm. then examined under the, the microscope. And in some cases you can see the remaining evidence of the eggs or the, of the parasite itself uh, still mm. there after thousands of years. So that shows you that the, um, the person was infected with the disease. Other That's methods um, are based on immunology where they're looking for the uh, the antigen, um, and an antigen is a pathogen that causes disease uh, in, in humans. Uh, so um, this was a method uh, used by other researchers uh, for trying to identify the disease uh, in uh, ancient mummified remains, and this was uh, really very successful. But when we started on our project, uh, we needed, first of all, to have um, a relatively large number of tissue samples and a relatively um, cheap method uh, of um, looking at all these samples. So one of our researchers developed um, a technique used for modern medicine called immunocytochemistry and that actually shows up uh, the, uh, the evidence for the, for the antigens uh, in, the, in the mummies and this was very uh, very successful and in fact she then went on to use DNA uh, to prove uh, the evidence of it being there. And she found evidence of the first um, identifiable um, parasite, uh, the DNA of this parasite in one of, one of the mummies. So she was able to look at whether 
the um, the genetics of the parasite had evolved over the millennia, which um, I mean they haven't. But um, so uh, that was a very interesting uh, um, development, really. And this technique, immunocytochemistry, uh, can be applied for other parasitic conditions as well. Now, in uh, skeletons, um, it's it's uh, more difficult in a way uh, because you can either <clears throat> look at the skeleton. Uh, and uh, you may see evidence of uh, lesions in the uh, in the skeleton, which would be a secondary development uh, from the parasitic infestation. Or sometimes you take it further and use X-rays to look again, and you'll see uh, that um, these areas uh, can be identified. So in a way, you're looking at the second stage uh, of the uh, of the infection. Okay. And I'm I'm personally not familiar with uh, schistosomiasis as a as a phenomenon. Uh, what are the symptoms of it, and how does it affect a human being? There are different types um, around the world. The two that um, you get in Egypt today, uh, one affects the bladder, one affects the liver. Uh, mm. Now we know that in antiquity the bladder one was. Um, present, but we've also been able to show that the the liver version was as well. So they impact on those um, organs. Uh, basically, the the parasites uh, enter the body, and it's um, their their impact on the body, uh, which um, which causes the the disease. So, for example, with um, the the bladder version, uh, which is known today as Bilharzia. Um, you, you get ble blood in the urine, um, you get um, a whole range of other conditions. Uh, so if they're not treated, they are very debilitating. And mm. ultimately, in some cases, they, of course, um, cause death. So for the, for the ancient Egyptians who are working with a very different set of uh, medical tools and a very different body of knowledge, how would an ancient Egyptian physician treat this condition or parasitic infections generally? Well, we have um, some 12 so-called medical papyri from ancient Egypt, which give prescriptions uh, which were used uh, in ancient Egypt. This is only the tip of the iceberg, of course, because if you think 12 papyri from some 3,000 years of uh, history, mm. There would have been others. They've not been. They've been destroyed or not discovered, or they may be in um, libraries and archives, but just not identified as uh, more medical papyri. But anyway, we have these these twelve uh, documents. So um, from within those documents, there are prescriptions for different kinds of uh, disease. And for example, for the um, the parasites, uh, they have a whole range of um, treatments for uh, parasitic conditions. Um, mm. So these get rid of the gastrointestinal, um, they rid the, the, the trapped of, of the worms, basically. Um, so some of these remained in the pharmaceutical practice, modern pharmaceutical practice, uh, until some 50 years ago. Uh, for wow. example, there's one, um, there's one which was um, made, which is made from pomegranate, and that uh, was in use. And then you have the laxatives such as castor oil and uh, figs and fruit and gypsum, which is similar to kaolin, uh, which was used um, to um, cure diarrhea, basically. But with schistosomiasis, uh, the thing that puzzled us 
was that from the samples that were studied in Manchester, some 70% uh, proved positive for schistosomiasis. Um, so this, without a treatment, should have been a very debilitating condition. But there they were, building tombs, temples, or whatever. So they were obviously highly active. So we began to ask ourselves, did they have a treatment? And this led to a three-year project that we had um, on um, pharmacy in ancient Egypt. And we, we looked not just at these medical papyri, but also at ancient um, evidence of plants and the availability, what plants would have been there uh, in Egypt in antiquity, either in the country or possibly imported. Uh, and we identified what was probably um, a treatment for the condition, which is balanites oil. Now this again, um, in the um, recent past in modern times, um, has been used as a treatment uh, for the condition. Mm. Fascinating. Goodness. So the the ancients had a had a range of methods for tackling uh, infections like this. Yes, and one of the really interesting things we discovered was that um, although it had always been said that a lot of these were based on magic or placebo, a lot of them are rational, reproducible pharmaceutical treatments, and also these were in existence. Um, hundreds of years, literally, uh, before the Greeks uh, wrote about treatments, um, and they were always called the fathers of pharmacy. But in not, in fact, they weren't. The, they took a lot of what they had from the ancient Egyptians. Mm, fascinating. And out of curiosity, in in the mummies that you studied as part of this project, had any of them? Um, possibly died from the, the infection or had any had any seemed to you know, go into a form of remission if that's possible it's very difficult to tell it's not usually possible to identify cause of disease uh, of death in a mummy um, uh, you can look at the diseases you can speculate very occasionally you can see what probably would have caused death but in in these cases uh, they had other diseases as well um, mm. And in some cases, they lived to a relative old age. So what they may have been would have been sort of milder but chronic con conditions of schistosomiasis. Mm. But it's not possible to be 100% um, sure. That makes sense. Hmm. So another one of your recent studies tackled the question of cancers in ancient Egyptian mummies. And... I was immediately curious uh, to what extent uh, medical texts from Egypt refer to diseases that might be cancers and or um, similar afflictions. There's a papyrus called the Ebers papyrus, one of these medical documents, and that has within it a section on uh, what are loosely translated as tumours. Now, we don't know if these are really tumours or whether they could be something like um, varicose veins, for example, the translations are not specific enough. Uh, right. It is possible that the Egyptians identified some kind of growths, and it's unclear whether they differentiated between um, um, growths that were benign and those that were malignant. 
But what all the evidence that we and others have looked at uh, has shown is that cancer in ancient Egypt was really extremely rare. And people say, oh, well, uh, you know, the ancient Egyptians died of other things first. Well, there are two um, answers to this. Uh, yes, they did die um, sooner in many cases, uh, but they did have other diseases that were related to relative old age. Uh, and also uh, there's a lack of evidence of childhood cancers in ancient Egypt as well. Now, if cancer was there in large numbers, it would be evident uh, in the remaining um, skeletal and mummified remains, and, and it's not. So you mm. then have to ask the question, why is it not there and why is it so much prevalent in, in the modern world? Mm. That leads me to my next question is, what, what did your studies of cancer in ancient history suggest about the, the disease in the modern world? Well, we left it as an open question, but I mean, you would have to consider um, I mean, the lack of, of smoking in ancient Egypt, mm. um, the, um, possibly the diet, uh, pollution, um, a whole range of factors that we, we have today, uh, which were not there in, uh, not just in ancient Egypt, but in antiquity generally. Um, you get an increase in, in cancer uh, from the Industrial Revolution onwards. Uh, mm. So um, it is to some extent that people didn't live as long, of course, but there are other factors there uh, as well. My conversation with Professor David will continue in part two, in which we discuss diseases that affected the ancient Egyptians, the Amana royal mummies, and her career as an Egyptologist. First, let's get that pesky automated advertising out of the way. See you in a moment. And now, part two of my conversation with Professor Anne Rosalie David. Now, we move to the Amarna period and the mummies of the royal family. There have been various studies of these bodies, and they have many controversies. Professor David weighs in. So, at the time that we are recording this, the History of Egypt podcast is laboriously covering the later years of Akhenaten. And this era was the subject of a rather we'll say famous study regarding the DNA relationships of late 18th dynasty royal mummies. But that publication or that, that study and the methodology prompted many challenges and concerns about its findings. And as someone who has experience with long-term studies of mummified remains and the possibility of identifying ancient DNA, what is your experience of DNA viability in mummified remains? There are considerable problems with uh, DNA identification. Uh, this has been known for, for many years. Um, uh, one of the main things, of course, is contamination um, mm. by um, later handling or even people working with the mummy at the time of the sampling. And um, we have found that um, you really have to take samples from deep within the mummy. Uh, tissue surface samples are really no good because they can have been exposed to all sorts of contaminants. Um, or to go inside uh, a tooth 
that is another possibility. So um, you can, to some extent, get round uh, the contamination if these um, these uh, criteria are, are observed. Um, also, the techniques themselves have much improved, and uh, our researchers, colleagues here in Manchester, have uh, developed um, a much more um, viable methods, if you like. But it is a very difficult uh, area and uh, you have to look at all the surrounding information, historical data as well, uh, mm. to begin to see whether you are in fact uh, on the right track. You have additional problems, of course, where um, the family you're looking at, the family group, are so interrelated uh, mm. from historical evidence. Um, so so that's, um, that's another uh, issue and um, it's, it's fraught with, with difficulties, really. So on a, on a professional Egyptological level, what is or was your assessment of that study and its conclusions? Well, I think um, one of the other problems is that it's only possible at the moment uh, to identify uh, mitochondrial DNA, which is from, from the mother, the nuclear DNA, it's not, which is from the father. So this again poses another lot of problems. And I'm sure um, the study um, is, you know, is a baseline for, for development, uh, but uh, there will undoubtedly, hopefully, uh, be further studies as techniques uh, improve and develop. I, I think with all our work, we can never say we've reached the final conclusion. Um, mm. We found with mummies in Manchester, we've, we've gone back um, we had um, the two brothers in our collection and the historical evidence, um, the inscriptions suggested that they were um, brothers, uh, half brothers probably with different fathers. But none of the earlier studies showed this up. And then uh, a couple of years ago, another study was undertaken and this provided really uh, very convincing evidence that they are half brothers um, from, from the mother. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, one of the things that makes it an exciting subject is that there's no final word almost on anything. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it looks to the future. Yes. And that actually brings me to something that I meant to talk about but haven't included in my questions here, is the, is the two brothers that you mentioned and um, the studies of them. I personally was not familiar with these uh, two individuals, and I'm guessing many of my listeners are not. Are you able to introduce us to who these these two brothers uh, were, and when did they live, and what was the uh, context of their discovery? Yes, they are a wonderful highlight in the development of biomedical Egyptology. Uh, they were discovered in Egypt in a joint tomb, buried together um, in um, the uh, beginning of the 20th century by uh, Sir William Flinders Petrie. Mm. Uh, he had um, a very close relationship with um, uh, Manchester. Uh, many of his excavations were funded by a Manchester textile uh, manufacturer, a man called Jesse Howarth. Okay. And when Petrie found this tomb, the whole tomb group, all the equipment, everything in it, the coffins, the bodies, the whole lot, uh, came to Manchester. So we have the whole tomb group, which is very unusual, in the Manchester Museum. Mm. Now, these brothers um, were unwrapped uh, in the early part of the 
20th century by one of the pioneers of biomedical Egyptology, Dr. Margaret Murray. And she was curator of Egyptology at the museum. And mm. she gathered yeah. together a multidisciplinary team of medics and scientists, which was revolutionary then, and they had a proper scientific study on these mummies. So um, that's who they are. They were um, uh, from a local um, elite family at a place called Rifa in Middle Egypt. Uh, they lived in the 12th dynasty, uh, Middle Kingdom, so around um, 1900 uh, BC. Uh, and uh, one was a priest in the local temple, and the other one um, was not, but they were so physically different. It was even in Margaret Murray's uh, report in 1910. Um, it said, you know, they cannot be full brothers because they are so dissimilar. And there were all sorts of speculation about this, whether one was adopted into the family or mm. whether they were actually half brothers. Uh, in the inscriptions, they give the name of the mother as the same person, but the father's um, seemingly, although they're not named, they seem to be uh, different people. So, um, and there's a big age gap between them. Okay. Uh, so um, this was the sort of main, and it's very good with DNA to have a specific question. It's mm. not really to do random DNA, it's almost pointless. But if you've got a historical question you can ask, mm. that's where it has its real um, uh, strength, if you like. Mm. And what was the, the conclusion of the re-study? Are they brothers or half-brothers or cousins? The evidence shows that in all probability, we also have to say this, they are, uh, they are uh, sons of the same mother, but um, that their, um, the fathers were uh, probably different. Of course, we don't have uh, the nuclear, the father's DNA, but the, they had a common mother. Hmm. Fascinating. I will have to go back into my Middle Kingdom episodes and add an, a section on these two, because that sounds fascinating. Yeah, there's a book on it, um, which I wrote a few years ago, uh, but also now there are papers, of course, on the, um, on the DNA, the recent DNA, yeah. Ah, excellent, that's good. I like a new topic for research, thank you very much. So, a couple of, couple of quick or light-hearted questions, if you're, if you're comfortable yeah. with them. For 99.9% .9 of the population, myself included, our experience of mummies tends to be from a museum or a museum storeroom, usually sealed within a nice glass case. So I'm curious about your physical experience of handling mummies and just a couple of little aspects. So for example, how much does a wrapped mummy tend to weigh? Well, this is an open question really because yeah. some mummies um, are quite lightweight uh, mm -hmm. some mummies are extremely heavy and it really depends on how much um, material is with the mummy in the wrapping particularly uh, bitumen uh, um, resin and uh, looking at the Manchester collection again there's one mummy belonging to a woman called Perimbast which is so heavily resonated that the mummy is stuck to the under coffin. And so whenever that's moved around or taken for x-ray or whatever, um, mm. it is extremely heavy. So they vary considerably, but the, uh, I mean, the lightest are easily 
um, liftable, but the heaviest are very heavy. And uh, the people involved in the actual moving of mummies, which I've never personally been, uh, will experience everything from um, um, a mummy that is easy to move right through to one that is extremely difficult. Mm. Is there is there any relationship between the quality of mummification and the weight? Not really. It's more dependent on, uh, as I say, whether they are impregnated heavily with mm. uh, with bitumen or whether what sort of you know amulets are between the wrappings. These all add, of course, uh, to the weight. If the mummy uh, is is very basic and just wrapped in bandages, then um, it's it's not going to be so heavy. Mm. And what does an unwrapped mummy smell like? Well, they have their distinctive uh, bouquets, if you like, yes. um, dependent very largely on the type of um, spices um, and ingredients that were used in the packing. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, I could go, when I worked at the museum, into the store and I could almost close my eyes and smell which mummy it was uh, wow. because they're quite distinctive aromas uh, very pleasant i mean there's nothing unpleasant about them mm. um uh, but they they retain that smell after you know thousands of years and apparent according to archaeologists that i've spoken to when excavating a area that uh, turns out to have a mummy apparently there is a it is very clear before the mummy is uncovered that there actually is a mummy in the vicinity because apparently it's the smell seeps into the sand or the soil and Gosh. begins to rise as you uncover it have you ever I experienced this i haven't no but it sounds it sounds very likely yes mm, i have i've had have it on good authority and um, unfortunately it's never happened to me because i've only excavated temples but i am looking forward <laughs> to that experience one day i, I think and what is the texture of a unwrapped mummy's skin? Again, it depends upon the uh, the method of mummification and how successful it was. Mm. So some mummies have very uh, fragile, friable tissue. Uh, the two brothers, for example, there was um, virtually no tissue left on the mummies okay. uh, after Margaret Murray's um, un unwrapping. Oh. Uh, but some of them, I mean, another mummy in the collection, uh, Asru, uh, she's been unwrapped since the middle 19th century when she came to the museum mm. uh, and she was unwrapped before this. Now, the tissue there is, is firm. Um, it, she was obviously very well mummified and um, she's been kept in uh, good conditions, of course, environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. And so the tissue there is is hard, uh, but firm. Uh, yeah. So it depends on the method of mummification, what mm -hmm. has happened to the mummy in the meantime, and uh, to some extent, of course, now the environmental conditions in, in which they're kept. Mm. So the, the popular image of the sort of uh, friable, papery, leathery skin is context-dependent. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So moving now to your work generally as an Egyptologist and your, your career, 
I'm very curious, what first drew you to Egyptology as a field of personal interest, and then what inspired you to choose it for your professional career? Well, when I was a child of six years of age, um, we had a talk at school, and the teacher showed um, a line drawing of three pyramids. I know now know that these were the you know, the Abu Sir pyramids, the famous um, reconstruction drawing of them. Then, of course, I didn't know. But that was it. I knew I wanted to be an Egyptologist. Wow. And I went home to my parents, um, didn't know the word Egyptology, but that's what I want to do. Mm. So I've never changed my mind. Um, the whole of my life, if you like, since then was focused on, on trying to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And I went to a school where uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to do not just Latin, but also ancient Greek. Uh, so I chose my degree course and my university, which was University College London, uh, where you could do Egyptology um, all those years ago in the 1960s uh, mm. as a part of an, a major part of an ancient history degree. Um, so um, then I went on to do my research, PhD research, on how the ancient Egyptians used the temple as, as a ritual uh, unit. Um, and then I worked at the Petrie Museum in London for nine months. Uh, and then the beginnings of my career at Manchester started in 1972, uh, when I went to Manchester to look after the uh, Egyptology collection at the University Museum. And then we built up on the mummy project over over the years and uh, back in the uh, early part of this century uh, we had this really great opportunity to set up a special center for uh, biomedical Egyptology which is the only place in the world where you can study it as a, as a, as a discipline uh, and uh, do a special degree in it and so I went there to to head up the uh, the center. Mm. Excellent. So a lifelong passion that just yeah. kept building. <laughs> and looking back at your, at your time in Egyptology, um, how do you feel the field has changed? Oh, I think it's changed um, tremendously. When I started out, Egyptology was really the study of the language, uh, mm. the hieroglyphs uh, and the history. Um, and uh, that, that really was it, uh, with some of the archaeology, of course, which was mm. also important. But over the decades, um, Egyptology, in a way, has caught up uh, with other archaeological disciplines, because whereas other kinds of archaeology without a lot of literature uh, were focused much earlier on the archaeological and the, uh, the bioarchaeological uh, aspects, uh, Egyptology, we all tended to focus so much on the on the very important uh, language studies but increasingly you can see that scientific uh, analyses have come into the field and of course in our field biomedical egyptology it's grown uh, enormously over the past um, 20 to 30 years mm. and looking forward are there any paths of inquiry that you would particularly like researchers to take in the future Yes, um, in our department, uh, in our centre, we're developing uh, a new technique in its application to uh, mummified remains, which is called proteomics, 
and it will be hopefully an alternative method uh, of um, identifying uh, disease in, in mummies without all the problems I've described which relate to DNA. Manchester is a world centre for modern patients in this field and it's been possible so far to show that this technique can be applied to ancient mummified um, tissue. So this is going to be something to uh, to watch uh, with really hopefully very exciting uh, results uh, in the future. The other thing I think which is important is uh, large-scale studies on human remains. Uh, so many of the studies, ours included, are focused on individual mummies or maybe mm -hmm. on museum collections. But there's huge scope there for um, uh, looking at large numbers of uh, mummies, which I'm sure is something that um, Egypt itself will develop um, in the in the coming decades. Because then you begin to get these patterns of disease that you can translate uh, into a, a context for modern disease because this is one of the other things that we're really keen on in Manchester is providing ancient evidence to look at why and where and if a disease has developed down to the uh, the modern day. Mm. Goodness that sounds fascinating. Um, yes, that, oh, very very exciting avenue of research. It is. It's, it's really one of the ways of the future for for Egyptology. Mm, particularly the, that idea of being able to do quantitative studies of um, human remains rather than just the very focused um, yeah. small selection. Excellent. Oh, that's exciting. Now, my last question is one that I, I ask of every interviewee, and it sort of gives an insight into um, different personalities and thoughts and perspectives on the past my question is if if you could if you could look back and definitively answer one question or issue from ancient egyptian history what would you choose and why well one of the things and i think it's probably um inspired if you like by our current circumstances but before that one of the things that has always interested me is why the particular kingdoms of ancient Egypt um, seemingly collapsed so mm -hmm. suddenly. Um, now, I know there are um, uh, political, economic, uh, maybe even religious reasons why this happened. But increasingly, you have to ask the question, um, and the evidence is, is not there at present, but was there some kind of major disease occurrence but it triggered this. I mean, looking at what's happening around the world today, you'd see all these, um, you know, these major um, um, industries and uh, economic structures collapsing because of a disease process. Mm. And I wonder whether there was something of that, at least in some of these uh, these collapses. I mean, the interesting evidence from the Pyramid Workman's Village at Cahoon, we have, as you know, uh, about half the objects from the site in the Manchester Museum. Mm. The interesting thing there is that the population, um, which is um, Middle Kingdom, uh, suddenly apparently disappeared. And yet um, things that were left behind included the workmen's tools. Um, uh, and if they'd gone to another building site, 
these they certainly would have taken with them. So there mm. is a certain amount of evidence that they you know, they left quickly. Now, was that uh, an epidemic? Um, there were baby burials excavated at Cahoon uh, in the 1890s by Flinders Petrie, and these were distributed to museums around the world. Um, one came to Manchester and it deteriorated in the 1930s and was disposed of. But there are other mummy, baby mummies, if you like, from Gahoon out there. And if anyone in the world has them, we'd be grateful to know. Because those babies might be a clue as to the kind of uh, diseases that might have been there. So that's my question. Basically, did disease and particularly uh, epidemic disease have any uh, major um, input and impact on the uh, on the co collapse of the kingdoms? Well, fascinating. That's a very specific answer. I like that a lot. Um, it's, it's very interesting to see how how people how people respond to that that question. That's a very good answer. I like that. So, Professor David, that brings me to the end of my questions. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show to, to answer them. Absolutely fascinating. I'm sure many of my listeners will be, will be really intrigued. I hope you've, en hope you've enjoyed yourselves, and thank you very much. I've enjoyed it enormously, and it's a great opportunity, thank you, to be able to share uh, some aspects of our work uh, mm. with the wider Egyptology community. Excellent. And I hope you'll consider coming on the show in future to talk about um, perhaps Takabuti and your next, your next publication or future research as well. I'd be delighted to do that. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast and special thanks to Professor David for speaking with us. Next week, our narrative resumes with the reign of King Tutankh Aten, better known as Tutankh Amun. See you soon.